although I wasn't there, I would imagine the scene resembled what we would think of as a funeral visitation. Friends were all gathered around, and they were no doubt in shock of what had just taken place. They probably would have remembered the events of just the past few days, even the past few hours. They might have thought about the man that lived in their city that they had known since the time he was born. They probably remembered the tragedy when they realized he wasn't going to be able to walk. And they probably remembered the time when the Apostle Paul came into town and began preaching. And because that man was listening intently and had faith, Paul healed him through God's power. And they can imagine that this man who hadn't been able to walk was able to leap up and stand on his feet. Muscles that hadn't been formed, tissues that hadn't fully developed, all of a sudden that was no longer an issue because he could stand up and he could walk. They probably remembered that. They may have remembered what took place right after that. As the very superstitious people all around began to exalt Paul and Barnabas as gods that had come in the form of men and they wanted a sacrifice to them. They may even have remembered this man ripping his robes in grief saying, no, don't do this, we're just men. Likely what was on all of their minds was what had just taken place. After a group of people who had been dogging Paul and Barnabas' footsteps arrived in town, they turned the crowds against him. And as they looked at the body of Paul, they were looking at a man who had been stoned, drug outside the city, and left for dead. Now we weren't there. But we can imagine the kinds of feelings and emotions that this group of disciples would have had as they stood around the body of the one who had affected their lives so much. But if you look at verse 20 of Acts chapter 14, something amazing takes place. Because while we can probably relate to the grief that they would have been experiencing, I doubt any of us can fully imagine the shock when Paul's eyes begin to open. When he stands up. And when he does something even further, when he goes back into the city. Verse 20, after he had been left for dead, while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a wonderful picture of commitment? Paul, who had been left for dead, he's able through God's power to stand up. The the book of Acts doesn't tell us that that Paul had died and was resurrected, but that he was left for dead. He probably appeared dead to all those around him, but through God's power, he was able to get up from this state of incredible pain, suffering. And not only that, but he walked right back into the city full of people who had just done that to him. I don't know about you, but when I read about Paul, when I read about that kind of commitment, I find myself wondering how I can develop, how I can cultivate that sort of commitment to God in my life. This past week, I encountered two gentlemen that exhibit that kind of commitment, that kind of consistent faith. Our young men, our high school age and college age young men, enjoyed a 48-hour leadership experience that David and Phil and, and JP and Evan did a wonderful job putting together and leading. And I was able to be a part of a few of those sessions And in one of those, we had a group of about 15 young men all sitting in a circle. As Jim Bill McIntyre, who has preached and ministered in this area for years, sat around and shared some wisdom and some insight with these young men. 
I was proud of our young men with how well they listened, but I was amazed when I heard a man who was 87 years old and who had been preaching for decades say that he gets up every morning and tries to think of what he can do to serve others, to make his life, that day God had given him, worth living. Isn't that a wonderful example of commitment? Just a day later, I listened to Juan Monroy, who is a minister and in several countries, not just Spain, also Morocco, and he's worked several, with several congregations in Cuba, spreading the Lord's word. And he was a little more playful about how old he was. He didn't really give us a clear answer on his age. Uh, but as he stood up there, he said some have asked if he's ever going to retire from being a missionary. And he pointed out the fact that we can retire from our jobs, but we don't retire from spreading God's word. And he said, when God retires, I will retire. And he smiled. And I thought, isn't that a wonderful example of commitment? And as we look at people, you can probably think of someone in your life that exhibited that kind of commitment to faith, that commitment to Christ, that you look at and you might wonder, I wonder what it is that causes them to get up. Like Paul did as he had been beaten down, left for dead. What would cause him not just to get up, we know that's the power of God working miraculously, but also to walk back in to the city where there's no guarantee that wouldn't happen again. As we read through the first uh, few verses of Acts chapter 14 this morning, I'd like for us to think about how we can cultivate commitment. Because as we think about our society, our society struggles with a lot of commitment issues. We don't live in a society where it's easy to commit to anything. It's becoming increasingly popular not to be fully committed to a job or an employer or even to a family or a relationship. In fact, the only thing that we really seem to be able as a society to fully commit to is ourselves and our own happiness. And as we continue doing that, if, if we could go to the next uh, couple of slides here, uh, let's, let's look at something that probably typifies our spiritual life. More than a movement from point A and point B, let's look at this next picture because I don't know about you, sometimes my life feels like a roller coaster. It feels like I'm on a mountaintop of faith experience here and then now I'm down at the bottom. And did you know the book of Acts seems to be a constant roller coaster. Things are going well, Peter preaches a sermon, thousands of people are coming forward, the gospel is spreading and then the church suffers persecution. And then they'll go into another place and things will be going well and then the church will suffer more persecution. And so as we begin, let's look uh, at the verses just following what Clay read for us in verse 11. We'll pick up with verse 11 and we'll continue uh, through verse 19 of Acts chapter 14. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, open your Bibles there. It's page 981 in your pew Bibles. And while you're turning there, let me tell you how excited we are to have you with us, especially if you're a guest. We want to get to know you, find ways that we can serve you. We hope you'll stick around for our Bible classes and let us get to know you better. We'll begin reading in verse 11, and we'll continue through verse 19. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garland to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, 
the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness, and with saying these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. As we look at this roller coaster that takes place, I can't think of a quicker transition in the book of Acts from popularity to persecution, can you? You have people that you can't even restrain from wanting to offer sacrifices. They're barely keeping them from worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And all of a sudden, in just the next few verses, they're being stoned and left for dead. As we think about the different commitment issues we face, the first aspect of Paul and Barnabas's approach that jumps out at us is their humility in verses 14 and 15. As this group of people is determined to worship them, they respond with humility. And the reason they were able to be humble is that they remembered who they were. Did you notice how they responded? That we are men just like you. It's interesting when we think of the society to which they would have been ministering as they had this healing take place. In that area, in that city, Zeus would have been considered the the patron god with the lowercase g. We would think of those as gods of mythology. Uh, To them, they were superstitious. Those legends really meant something to them. And so they would think of Zeus. There was also a statue of Hermes that was uncovered by archaeologists in that city. And so you have these two gods that would have been very important to the people there. We may remember Zeus as being usually considered the the chief of all gods. In fact, he's often pictured sitting on a throne or riding in a chariot. We think of the thunderbolts that according to mythology he was able to cast down. When they think of Zeus, they think of someone that's powerful. And interestingly, they claim that Barnabas was Zeus. And although we usually think of Paul more quickly than we think of Barnabas, they had Barnabas pegged to Zeus and Paul as Hermes. Hermes was a messenger god. In fact, If you look at the FTD logo, there are many florists that still use this this picture of Hermes, the messenger god, relaying a message. Even when the Olympics begin this coming week, you may even see the picture of Hermes. He was the god most closely associated with the Olympics. And because he was the spokesman, and it seems that Paul is doing a great deal of the speaking here, they had Paul pegged as Hermes. Now that might sound a little odd to us, that they would immediately have a suspicion that these two men were mythological gods that were clothed in human skin. But it's interesting as we read throughout history, there was a local legend in that area that both Zeus and Hermes had gone into the city of Phrygia and they had been disguised as men. They had walked around and were looking for help. No one would welcome them in. No one would show them any hospitality except for two individuals. And according to the legend, those two individuals were blessed and everyone else was exterminated. Now, if you had grown up hearing that legend, and all of a sudden you see these two individuals and you have these superstitious beliefs, it makes it a little bit easier to understand why they were so quick to want to make sacrifices to them. And so, as Paul and Barnabas remember who they are, when they see what's taking place it probably took them a little, a little while because they were speaking in a different language, in the Laconian language. So if you've ever been in a situation where someone's speaking another language, sometimes it takes a little bit to figure out exactly what's going on. But once they finally figured out what's going on, they were, they were ripping their robes in grief and dismay 
and pleading with these people not to do such a thing. It's interesting, throughout the book of Acts, this isn't the only time that apostles are viewed of as, as being gods. You may remember in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius is converted and Peter comes to Cornelius' house. What is Cornelius' first reaction? He runs out to Peter and falls at his feet and worships him. Peter says something very similar, saying, get up, I'm just a man like you. Later on, towards the end of the book of Acts, Paul will be bitten by a snake. And he will not die from the bite of this poisonous snake in Acts chapter 28. And people will, will take that as evidence that Paul is a god. And so that was a temptation that really did follow these apostles around. You can imagine with God working such wonderful, miraculous things through them, that you would have the temptation to worship the messenger and not the person who sent the message. Now Paul and Barnabas had suffered some persecution already. Wouldn't it have been tempting just to let this go on, maybe for just a little bit. I mean, wouldn't, have, wouldn't it have been tempting as all these people were showering them with adoration and praise and wanted to honor them and treat them so well? Wouldn't it have been nice, if not for a long time, but just for a little bit, if they could have just let them, let them worship them, let them have their fun, let them go ahead and do this. It's time for us to have a break. We've gotten all sorts of persecution. We've taken all kinds of flack. Why not just enjoy this for a little while? Then we'll correct them. But they remembered who they were. And it's interesting because when we look in just a few chapters earlier, in Acts chapter 12, as Herod stood up and began speaking to the people, someone cried out that was the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod didn't give glory to God, and that eventually cost him his life. Paul and Barnabas knew how serious it was to remember who they were. And so they wouldn't allow, even at the top of the roller coaster, when things seemed to be going so well, and, and surely just for a few minutes you could have let these people have their fun, but they were determined to remember that they were only human. They had that kind of humility that was evident, even when things were going well. And isn't it tempting for us, when things are going well for us, the first aspect of our lives that seems to vanish, the first attribute of human beings that, that seems to go by the wayside is humility. Sometimes success reveals a lot about who we really are. And if I get a promotion at work, or if I'm able to get a scholarship at school, or if I'm in a position where I'm in authority and people are constantly telling me how good I am and, and how wonderful I'm doing, it's tempting to forget who I am and to go after success. In fact, it's one of probably the most prevalent temptations we face when we spend the week in and I know several of you are spending weeks in, in schools and weeks in the working world where you're surrounded with people who are looking out for number one constantly trying to one-up the other person in the office, constantly working on how they can improve uh, their standing, not only in the office, their, their physical, their monetary standing. And it's so difficult sometimes to remember who we are and that we're God's people, and that's not what we're about, that we're, we're to be humble and not to promote ourselves. Robert Stephen Reed wrote an interesting story about a young man he encountered, and he was trying to spread... Uh, the news about Jesus to this young man who had come over to be an MBA student from Japan. And so as he was speaking with this student, uh, the student had come to the end of his time in the MBA study. So at this point, he'd studied under several American businessmen, and he was very sharp, and his, his English had become very Americanized, and they were able to communicate freely. But notice what he said right before this young man was going to head back to Japan to work. This man was, was telling Mr. Reed... I think as my teacher, you had hoped I would approve of the teaching of Christianity, but this cannot be. 
I have read the teachings of Jesus and have come to understand that if I were to accept these teachings, I would not be able to serve my Japanese employers faithfully. In other words, there were things he would be asked to do that as a Christian, he would not be able to do in good conscience. So that indicates a mature understanding of what Jesus would have us to do as followers of him. But notice what he says next. I've raised questions about these teachings in my MBA classes, and my American professors have explained that such things do not apply to American business, only to American religion. And notice what he says next. This is still a part of American religion that I do not understand. In other words, he was being taught that, well, there are some things that apply only when you're in a church setting, only when you're in a religious setting, and then once you're in the business world, you can forget about that. You can forget who you are there. You can forget who you are on Sunday when you're at work on Monday. It's a challenge for us. But if I want to have that same commitment that Paul had, even at the top of the roller coaster, when I'm on top of the world, I'm going to have to maintain that humility. Remember who I am. But not only that, things turned very quickly for them. In fact, by verse 19, these oppressors that had already been a source of conflict in their ministry have followed them here to Lystra, and now they're spreading the word. Can you imagine how quickly the tide turns here? With a crowd of people that wanted nothing more to worship them, that could barely be kept from offering a sacrifice. Now, they may have misunderstood why Paul and Barnabas wouldn't let them offer this sacrifice. Maybe they're trying to to understand what they're saying And then, all of a sudden, these individuals spread among the crowd and say, let me tell you who these men really are. Let me tell you what they've really done. Who knows what kinds of of half-truths or lies would have been spread to turn the crowd. But finally, in verse 19, the crowd that had been for them turned against them. Don't we see that throughout the New Testament? I'm especially reminded of the teachings of Jesus. As he would teach crowds, the same crowd that was crying Hosanna when he entered into Jerusalem was the crowd that would cry, crucify him, just a few days later. And we're reminded of how fleeting that popularity and public adoration can be. And so in verse 19, they went over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And that's where we come to the scene we remembered at the very beginning of our time together this morning. All his disciples gathered around him, and Paul is able to stand up and head back into the city. Not only did Paul and Barnabas display humility, but also courage. They displayed humility by remembering who they were. They displayed courage by remembering who they served. If all Paul had been relying on was his own human strength, he would have realized heading back into that city could have spelled disaster because of what they had just done. But he was able to have courage because he remembered the one that he served. And as we think about what took place... Sometimes when we read about biblical concepts such as stoning and and we go over those so quickly, we forget what a gruesome event that would have been. Paul already knew. Remember, he was standing as Stephen was stoned earlier in the book of Acts. But as we think about this process of stoning, we're not not talking about small, small pebbles or small rocks. These are heavy stones that are intended. The express purpose is for the death of the person that you were stoning. And so you can imagine the bruises, the tears in the skin, the, the way that, that Paul would have felt as he was able to, as he wrote to the Galatians, bear in his body the brand marks of Christ. We can picture the scars from those stones being there as evidence of his persecution. In fact, he would write about that time in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, as he's, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, rather, as he's listing all of the persecutions he's endured. 
And he would, he would talk about once I was stoned in there. And that's what he's talking about right here is this time in Lister. But he's able to stand up because he has that kind of courage. And I wonder, how much courage do I have in the one that I serve? Is it the same kind of courage Paul had? Now, we might not be able to sympathize or to imagine life at the top of the roller coaster. But probably all of us can imagine life at the bottom, can't we? Can't we think of times where we just didn't even feel like getting out of bed in the morning? Where, where we just didn't even know where the strength was going to come from to go to another day of work or deal with a, an, another day of taking care of, of our family or, or taking care of those that, that are entrusted to us or doing what we need to do to help our friends or making sure that we, after a long day of work, make the drive over to the church building to be a part of our Wednesday night Bible classes and it wears on us and we get so tired and sometimes we even feel like we're just at the bottom of the roller coaster, that we couldn't get any lower. Do we have the courage in the one we serve to stand up? It may be this morning that, that there are some in this room and you felt this morning like you just didn't know if you could get out of bed, that you didn't know if it was worth it to get out and to start another day and that it was such a struggle just, just to make it here this morning to worship. I don't know about you, I'm glad that God preserved stories like Paul and Barnabas so that we can see his followers who were there at a point where you couldn't get any lower. I can't imagine being any lower than where Paul was. Yet he had the courage to stand up, to go back in the city. He left out the next day for a journey that would have taken about 60 miles. So he was able, after being so near death, to make such a long journey. They'd come back later on in the chapter. We read about them coming back into Lystra and encouraging the disciples. But the courage didn't come from themselves. It came from the one that they served. As I think about that kind of commitment, I can be encouraged this morning to realize I'm not relying on my own physical abilities. I might not feel like getting out of bed in the mornings. I might not feel like another day. It, would, it might be difficult. And I know in, in a room this large, there are so many backgrounds and stories of challenges that we face every day. And if we were putting confidence in ourselves, we'd be in trouble. But like Paul and Barnabas, if we can put our confidence in God we'll be able to have much more courage. We're not relying on ourselves. We're relying on the one that we serve. If you looked at this trip into Lystra, the, the highest high being them almost being worshipped by a group of people, the lowest low being stoned and drugged out of the city and left for dead, and then they leave the next day, we might be tempted to think that this wasn't a very successful trip, that there wasn't a lot that was accomplished. But what's interesting is that we'll read just a couple of chapters later in Acts chapter 16 that when they come back through this area that Timothy is there and that Timothy by that point is already a believer. It's very likely that it was on this trip that either Timothy was preached, during this, preached to during this trip or that he received this message from those that were converted by Paul and Barnabas. Timothy and, and his, his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, they may have even been part of the group that was standing around Paul's body outside the city. And so as Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 11, he would reference as a part of an encouragement to Timothy to never give up and to have this kind of faith to deal with the difficulties that are going to come in the hard times. He would reference the persecutions he experienced at Lystra and Iconium. 
Timothy would know exactly what he was talking about. And Paul's example, like it did for Timothy, can encourage us to have the commitment that results in humility when things are going well and courage when things aren't. The very first verse that Clay read for us described a man who had been lame from birth. And because of the power of God, Paul was able to tell him to get up and to walk. As we think of God's power in our lives, the gospel message is that as, as we understand and have faith in, in God's word, as we turn our lives around, we're willing to submit to him. As, as we put Christ on in baptism, we're able to get up, to raise up from that water and not have a physical healing, but have something much better, the spiritual forgiveness of our sins. And we're able to get up and walk spiritually with the Lord in a life that will end in an eternity spent with Him. You may be here this morning and you've never taken advantage of that opportunity. Well, the good news of the gospel and the message we can receive from this chapter is that we have an opportunity now to get up and to begin that journey following in the footsteps of Christ as God takes you through life. It may be that you feel a little bit more like Paul, that you've had all of the tribulations and the trials of life thrown at you and you've been experiencing all kinds of pain. We've all been there and if we relied only on ourselves, we'd never be able to make it. But the good news this morning for you is that just like Paul, you can find the courage to trust in God and to stand up. And if work has been a trying time for you, you can have that kind of courage Paul did to walk back in there Monday morning. If school has been difficult for you, you can have that courage to get up and to walk right back in. Our lives are like roller coasters. But as we can see from this chapter, if we're faithful to God and committed to Him, God can use us even in our highest highs and our lowest lows to accomplish His will. If there's any way that we can help you, if there's any need that you want to make known, please come as we stand and sing together.